We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if not, let me invite you to use one of the pew Bibles that's in your seat or in the seat close to you. Turn to page 893 or 1039. We're looking at Revelation chapter 19. As you're turning there, let me invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. John writes, now after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, You who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that, for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, after a 108-year wait, on November 2nd, 2016, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. And for many Cub fans, myself included, it felt like this was something that we would never see in our lifetime. And actually, a number of Cub fans actually did not see the Cubs ever win a World Series. Still, almost a year later, as the Cubs have once again clinched the National League Central Division, as they prepare for a deep playoff run and what I like to believe, another World Series championship, I like to go back and watch videos of that magical night. Now, there are all kinds of videos that were uploaded and created by Cub fans and uh, commercial enterprises, but one of my favorite is the fans' reaction Outside Wrigley Field, there were literally thousands of people gathered together watching on their phones and watching the marquee sign outside Wrigley Field. Now, if you remember the final innings of that game, if you're a big baseball fan, you remember that that it was kind of like a heavyweight boxing match. Uh, The Cubs jumped out and then the Indians came roaring back and they traded blows. And then there was this 17 minute rain delay in which the Cubs came out in the bottom of the 10th inning. Mike Montgomery made a pitch, the batter for the Indians, hit a slow roller to third, Chris Bryant charged, picked up the ball, slipped in the infield, and fired a shot across the first base to Anthony Rizzo. And this video goes from that scene, the final out of the game, 
immediately to the crowd outside Wrigley Field. And what you see is that people, when they recognize that the Cubs have overcome their opponents, is this great roar move throughout the people. The same thing is happening here in Revelation chapter 19. What we've seen is that John is giving us a picture of the future. Chapters 17, 18, and 19 kind of are taken together as a whole. And in order to understand them, you have to understand each of their individual parts and how they're interwoven together. Revelation chapter 18 last week showed us the destruction of the commercial, the political, and the religious Babylon. The structures in our world that attempt to take us and draw us away from God himself. Now, the scene changes. Now we're actually in the throne room of heaven in Revelation chapters in 19 and 20 show us the return of Jesus. Now, up to this point, he's been ruling and reigning as the coming and conquering king. But now he is the returning champion here to set up his earthly kingdom. So what we see in this first section is that heaven and everyone in heaven is marked by the worship of God. This is a scene of tremendous joy and celebration in the same way that all of the fans celebrated outside Wrigley Field and Cub fans in their homes and in bars and in private parties celebrated. This is a picture of celebration. It's a picture of eternal joy. It's a picture of heavenly joy. But for you and me, it's not exclusively a picture of future joy. See, we think of heaven as something that we're going to experience at some point down the road. And so we sometimes have this idea of Star Trek Christianity where we just wish God would beam us up to that particular point in time or that particular place. But see, this joy that's pictured for us in Revelation chapter 19 is also available right now. This joy when we trust and we live in faithful dependence upon Christ and God's provision in and through Jesus, we can experience this joy. Now, we may not experience it to the same degree. We may not experience it in the same intensity, but it is a reality available for you and for me right here and right now. So John shows us. He gives to us this wonderful picture of what it is that creates joy in heaven. At the center of everything is the glory and the majesty and the sovereignty and the justice and the beauty of God and his Christ. So all of, celebrate, all of heaven is celebrating and so what we see is the first thing that brings joy in heaven is the engagement of the worship of God. Now, there are several sections in Revelation 19. The first five verses show us this response to God conquering his enemies, to judging the evil Babylon, the harlot that attempts to entice and to lure the people of God away. This is a really dramatic chapter. It's the only place in the New Testament where this word hallelujah is used. It's actually used four times in this particular chapter. John writes, he says, Now after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, and they were crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now this is not the first time we've seen and heard these refrains, but again, the, the citizens, the residents of heaven are worshiping God. This great, loud multitude here is the redeemed people of God. The saints of God who have been cleansed and washed by the blood of the Lamb. But notice a couple of things about their worship. It's unified. Their worship is unified. They're shouting and declaring these words together. 
Now, after every home victory, the Chicago Cubs over the loudspeaker play this song called Go Cubs Go. And those in attendance who are Cub fans, they sing it. Those who are watching on television, they sing it. After the Cubs won the World Series, they celebrated by hosting this parade. And this celebration parade, it went through the streets of Chicago and it ultimately culminated in Hutchinson Park. Estimates are that there were 5 million people in attendance to the parade and the celebration. Now, those may be a little bit high, but we're talking literally hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people celebrating together. Now, they went to Hutchinson Park, and there they had members of the team, they had members of the front office speak, but they finished the entire celebration by singing, Go Cubs Go! So they invited this musician out with his guitar, and hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people, sang in unison this song. For a Cub fan, there probably isn't anything better in the world to have experienced that in person. But there is something better. See, one day all the redeemed people of God, sinners who've been saved by the grace and the mercy of the eternal triune God, will gather together and in one voice we will declare the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Their worship is unified. Something else you see is that it builds in intensity as these different groups contribute their part. See, verses 1 through 3 describe the worship of the multitude, the redeemed people of God. But then we see that their worship is followed by the worship of the 24 elders and four creatures. Now, we've talked about this before. The 24 elders simply represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles or the disciples, of the New Testament. You take those two numbers, you add them together, you get the number 24. And the 24 elders represent the redeemed people of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The work of God and the plan of redemption and salvation throughout the course of human history are gathered together with all created beings. That's what the four creatures, four creatures represent. All that has been created, the 24 elders, the redeemed people of God, and with a voice they speak a word of praise. Now notice what happens. The multitude of the redeemed, they resume their praise of God. They join in. But now it's not just a loud voice, the way it was described in verse 1. But John says, it was like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. So as each individual person and individual group contribute to their part, the worship of God is intensifying. People are energized to see those around them engaged in this heavenly and glorious activity, the declaration of God's beauty and majesty. The same thing happens for you and me. There's something that happens when we gather together for corporate worship, when we see other people praying, when we see other people pouring their hearts in song, we see other people sitting under the word of God, that our worship, the fires of our passion are stoked and those flames burn brighter and hotter. See, heaven's a place of unspeakable joy because of the worship that takes place. Sometimes our worship here leaves something to be desired. Our worship here doesn't compare to the worship that we see here in Revelation 19. But that doesn't mean that worship cannot be a source of great joy for you and for me. Now, in some ways, I think of corporate worship, the worship of the living, eternal, triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, everything that that requires us. I think of it as an act of rebellion. Now, everybody this day, everybody in this particular day and age seems to want to be an activist. Everybody wants to protest. Everybody wants to fight for a cause. And I think of corporate worship as a protest. 
I think of a corporate worship when we gather here together as a protest against the materialism, against the greed, against the lust, against the structures that are set up that attempt to draw us away from the worship of God. Every single week when we gather here together, we're declaring to Park City. We're declaring to our community that we will not be taken in by the pleasures, by the comforts, by the conveniences of this world. We're not going to just pursue wealth. We're not just simply happy with a life of luxury. Because you and I, we found in God the satisfaction of the desires of our soul's deepest longings. The only thing that can truly meet the longings of the human heart, the only thing that can bind up the brokenness that you and I experience is God himself. Jesus tells a number of parables in the Gospels, but there's two parables in particular in Matthew chapter 13, in which Jesus says in chapter 13, verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid and for joy over it. He goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. He continues in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's seeking beautiful pearls. Who, when he had found the one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The point of these parables is that Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is the treasure. And really, at the center of the kingdom of God is God himself. That God really is the treasure. So everything that these people have acquired over the whole course of their life, all the sum total of their resources, when they find this buried treasure, when they find this pearl of great price, they, with great joy, say goodbye to all of that so that they could possess the one thing that truly mattered. That's what we see in heaven. That's what we declare in worship is that God is the true treasure. John Piper, he writes and says this. Worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven, to all of Babylon. And we talked about Babylon is here now. It's not just something that took place in the past, but it represents all the political and social and economic structures that draw us away from God. That we declare to all of Babylon, we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies. To the allurements of the world. We live in Babylon now, but we will not be captive to our ways. We celebrate with all our might the truth, the awesome truth, is that we are free from that which will be destroyed. He continues, corporate worship is the flagrant, open enjoyment of God in the midst of a very seductive culture. Let me just ask, really, like, do you... Do you anticipate, are you excited about the gathering of God's people to engage in corporate worship? I read about one pastor and he would wake his kids up on Sunday mornings and he would say, this is the best day of the week. This is the best day of the week because this morning we get to hear God speak to us. This is the best day of the week because we get to gather together with God's people and we get to sing of the salvation that we experience. Now Sundays at our house... We don't wake up thinking this is the best day of the week, especially when we woke up with weather like this. I was thinking, I just want to go back to bed. But the people of God, we should be energized and excited by the worship of God. Now, one of the songs that we sing here, the chorus goes, Behold our God. Nothing can compare. So come, let us adore Him. There are all kinds of things in my life. All kinds of things that I get way more excited about than I get, a, get excited about worshiping God. 
Just yesterday, we were watching college football. As most of y'all know, who know me, I'm a huge college football fan. And it's, well, it's not even borderline. It's way beyond what's acceptable for a follower of Christ. So yesterday, as my beloved Mississippi State Bulldogs were demolished on the field by my wife's beloved Auburn Tigers, I let loose a barrage of things that were completely and totally inappropriate for anybody to say, let alone a follower of Christ. But here's the truth. I wish, I wish that I was that excited about worshiping Jesus as I am about Mississippi State football. That's just the honest truth. I celebrate way more when they're victorious on the football field. My heart, like not just, just the things that I say in the way, I, but in my heart, there is this sick sense of meaning that comes from them winning and being successful. You've got it in your life. I don't know what it is, but you've got that thing in your life. That thing that really makes you tick. That dream of something in the future, if you can just accomplish something, if you could just acquire, then your life would really be the way it's supposed to be. See, we exchange all kinds of things. We adore all kinds of things. We worship all kinds of things. But the church... The church, the reason why we gather here every single week is because we need to be reminded that the true treasure is God himself. That's what we do every single week. We gather together to say, amidst all the money, all the wealth, all the success, all the college football, all the baseball, everything in this, all the pleasure that surrounds us, we are putting a stake in the ground that God is the only one who will satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. So if we're going to worship God the way heaven worships God, we have to see God the same way that heaven sees God. So what causes this sound like a roar of mighty waters, the sounds of mighty peals of thunder? Well, the answer is it's the people, the redeemed people of God, seeing God in all of his beauty and glory and splendor. So what do we see? We see that glory belongs to God. We see that power belongs to him. He's the one who has the power to conquer the beast. He's the one who conquers evil and the suffering of Babylon. He's the one that overcomes the influence of sin and all of its destructive consequences in our lives. Only God is the one who has the power. So from the, from the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters this world, all hell is coming apart, it seems, and everything is reversing. So as God creates, he brings order out of chaos. Sin enters in the world and creates chaos out of the order in which God created. But God has been working, patiently working, over hundreds and thousands of years through various people, the nation of Israel, through the leaders of the early church, through individual congregations, through missionaries who have left their homes and go to places in the world to reverse this process to, in the later part of Revelation, we're going to see, to make all things new. So here we see heaven celebrating with the shouts of victory that salvation is here, that the God of glory and of power is victorious. We also, verse 2 says that he is just. All that he does, everything that he conducts is true and is just. He has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality. And he's avenged the blood of his servants. The men and women, the boys and girls, who because of their commitment to Jesus, have paid with their own lives. 
Now, first glance, this kind of seems a little strange. We don't usually sing songs on Sunday morning of praise and worship where we're saying, that's right, God, give it to our enemies. Crush their heads. Defeat those who oppose us. But throughout the Bible, this is one of the things for which God is celebrated. We see this in the Old Testament, the worship of Israel. When God delivers his people out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 15, Miriam, the sister of Moses, this is what she says. She says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. In verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, it shatters the enemy. In verse 9, she continues, the enemy says, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, and my desire shall have its fill of them when I draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. So this is a theme that God is glorified for being just and true, for opposing evil and dealing with wickedness in the world. In Psalm 149, the psalmist says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And then he tells us why. He says, may the praise of God be in their mouths and may it be a double edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the people. To bind their kings, their nobles with shackles of iron and to carry out the sentence written against them. And this is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. In this particular instance, in Exodus 15 and other places, God is specifically praised and glorified and worshipped and celebrated for his vengeance against the nation. And this is what the book of Revelation is all about. What we've seen is a church that's trampled, but at the same time, a church who's triumphant. We saw in chapter 6, the prayers of the martyrs as they're gathered around the altar of God, they cry out. They said, oh, sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge ours, our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They were crying out for justice. They were crying out for God to act. A lot of us here sing that song. And we don't sing it in the exact same way. We don't sing it and celebrate, but we ask the same question. How long? Some of us here, or some of us who aren't here this morning, I'm thinking about individuals who are dealing with chronic pain. Battling cancer. We're going to chemotherapy. Others of us... We watch as people we love endure the humiliation and the loss of dignity as they battle Alzheimer's and other cognitive impairment diseases. And we cry out, how long? How long? We lay awake at night and we wrestle with our own weakness, with our own failures. We cry out, how long? This seems to be a part of the universal human condition Rather than feeling like more than conquerors is what Paul says, we feel like failures. And oftentimes less than human. It's a part of the universal human condition. But it's not true about God. You see, we see in the worship of heaven that God is eternal. See, verse 3 emphasizes the eternality of his truth and justice in which we see the smoke that goes up forever and ever. That God's judgment will one day on evil be final and permanent and irreversible. He will deal with the injustices of the world. He's mighty. If you skip down to verse 6, you read, For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He's saying that this morning as well. And it's the supreme title 
that's attributed to God in the book of Revelation. It's used nine different times in which John hears this great multitude in this chapter shouting, Hallelujah! The Lord Almighty has begun to reign. The point is that God is ruling over Babylon because she's finally been destroyed. Now, God has been ruling and reigning sovereignly the entire time. But until this particular moment, he has ruled according to his patience and his long-suffering mercies. Because he is wise, he has allowed evil to run its course. Because it's a part of this beautiful tapestry or the story that he's telling. He allows the dragon... The beast, the false prophet, the harlot to persecute and sometimes to even destroy his people. But there will come a point where God will finally say no more. Enough is enough. And his wrath will be complete. God is also sovereign. The Lord God almighty reigns. That word almighty literally means the one who simply holds all things under his control. He's the one who declares the end from the beginning. It is his will that is always And ultimately accomplished. This God is our God. So that sovereignty, that might is used for the good of his people. Even when we can't see it or understand it. So you and I, we don't have to be anxious or worried about the future. So if we're going to worship the way heaven worships, we have to see God for who he truly is. How did they worship God in the midst of all the persecution? The churches whom John is writing to, they remembered that the Lord our God Almighty reigns. So in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through, how do we worship in the same way? We remember that the Lord our God Almighty reigns. And when we do that, then we'll see that there's a multitude of reasons to bless His holy name. Let's pray.